0: Hello. Before we get started with the show, I wanted to talk to you about uh, something that's near and dear to my heart, and that is sleep. I travel a great deal. I travel all around the world. I just got back from Kiev, crossing the Moldovan border. And the thing I always look forward to is getting back to my uh, king-size bed with my Pillow mattress topper installed on the top. Now, I like a firm mattress because uh, I have back problems from uh, a long time ago uh, playing sports in high school. I love my firm mattress with the My Pillow mattress topper on top. You get the firmness, but also it's like sleeping on a firm cloud. I really can't explain it, but it is the most comfortable sleep I have ever experienced in my life, and I can't wait to get back to it every time I travel. If you go to My Pillow right now with promo code CDM, you can get a 50% discount on the mattress toppers. Uh, Mike Lindell is giving out amazing discounts right now. Uh, get them while they last. Use promo code CDM at mypillow.com and get the My Pillow Mattress Topper, the best sleep you will ever experience. Thank you very much. Now, on to our guest.
1: This may be one of the most important American conversations that we have brought to our audience. And today, I am honored to have Dr. Paul Merrick and Dr. Pierre Corey joining us. And this is very, very important. As anybody know, as our audience knows, I have interviewed off camera hundreds, hundreds of Nation injured here in the United States and abroad. Many of them did not want to go on camera initially in 2021. And then when one of Fauci's uh, colleagues said to me that the vaccine injured were urban legends, is when I went back to many of the people that I had been speaking to and asked them to please go on camera, because if they didn't, they were going to be continually gaslighted. And it was very important for them to get treatment. To date, we know that the uh, FDA has acknowledged the cardio injuries, the heart inflammations in June of 2021. To date, they, the FDA fauci the nih the niaid the cdc has not officially acknowledged the vascular and the neurological injuries i can say this as a journalist i am not a medical expert by any stretch of the imagination i am a corruption journalist i investigate corruption and when i interviewed many of these uh vaccinated injuries injured most of them were women And most of them had been suffering neurological and vascular injuries. Many of them had not taken D-dimer tests when I initially spoke to them. And today we have two of the world's most committed, courageous, and I mean this, I honor them professionally and as friends. Paul and Pierre, welcome to the show. Pierre, I think your mic is off. Um, but I just want to say to, to you, guys, thank you, and today's a big announcement because you have come up with a treatment guide for the VAX injured, and you've done this in collaboration with other physicians. And so let's first start with you, Paul, and l- explain to us you're the organization that uh, you and Pierre started before we get into this, the, your findings and your treatment guide.
2: Yeah, well, thank you, Christine. Thanks for having me uh, me on the show, and I suppose um, Pierre as well. Um, <laughs> what can I say? Hi, Paul. Hi, Pierre. <laughs> so, you know, how did this start? Well, you know, it, it wasn't that we set out to, to you know, create this organization. We filled a void in March of 2020 as, as much as we're filling a void now. So as if you remember, you know, COVID came to New York and was coming to the Eastern shore and um, patients were being admitted to the hospital, being admitted to the ICU, and they were dying. The mortality in the ICU was close to 80%. And if you recall, the treatment approach, which was being advocated by the NIH, the CDC, the FDA, and the WHO, was supportive care. Supportive care is no care. So, so you had a disease in which patients were dying, and doctors were told there's no treatment. And, I mean, that's completely and utterly absurd in the history of medicine. Doctors have a moral and ethical obligation to do something, um, to do something to treat their patients. So we were accumulating data. We had a bedside experience. Um, We collaborated with colleagues. So we put together a guide for the hospital management of the uh, patient uh, with COVID-19. At that time, we recommended corticosteroids and anticoagulation, and we were laughed at. In fact, the WHO, the CDC, NIH said, you do not use steroids to treat COVID-19. Obviously, they were wrong. Um, Not that we were smart. We just knew we were bedside clinicians. We knew what was going on. We could see with our own eyes, and obviously with time, Uh, Both interventions have been proven beyond any shadow of doubt to save lives. Um, And it's really just by, you don't need large randomized controlled trials. You need doctors at the bedside who do what doctors do, practice medicine and keep their eyes open. So really that's how the FLCC started, was to fill this void. We soon recognized that, you know, the hospital treatment was only part of the problem. What really we needed was early treatment early treatment of people with COVID-19 was really the key to preventing this awful pandemic. Early treatment was the key. So we developed protocols for the early treatment of SARS-CoV-2. That was despite the fact that the NIH said, again, there was no treatment. You stay at home until you can't breathe and you go blue and then you go to hospital. And then they put you on
1: ventilators and 80% of those people would perish.
2: Exactly. So we know if you if all these people have been treated early, and there are a variety of different treatment protocols, ours is one, but there's similar protocols. There's no question that 70, 80 to 80% of these poor people who perished would not have died, um, again, an outrage. So you know it then became clear to us that we were we were facing a even greater humanitarian disaster with these vaccine injured people you know we were being approached by them uh, personally both Pierre and myself we engaged in many conversations and um well of course people recognized that there was a thing called covid and they recognized there was a thing called post covid nobody none of the health agencies or most medical practitioners would recognize that there was such a condition as post-vaccine injured. So these poor people, this is a real disease. This is not imagined. These people suffered in silence. They had no access to medical care. They were shunned and really were marginalized for doing what they were told to do, be vaccinated. So, you know that's why we again we filled this void. We, we had no option. Mm-hmm. There are millions of vaccine injured people across the world um and they just have nowhere to go. so that's why we put together this management protocol for the vaccine injured patient
1: pierre in the in the uh the nineteen page paper that that you're going to be that you by the time this airs. You will have released it and had your webinar, and we're going to release this immediately afterwards. There's 159 citations on the 19-page paper. There's names of doctors who are well known for being good physicians that believe in the patient-doctor relationship, and I know I can I can see when I read it, even though I don't have a medical you know experience whatsoever. That some of your findings for treatments that work in the in the different stages actually are some of the I guess leaps of faith many of the VAX injured I interviewed tried because they weren't they, they weren't getting any acknowledgement that they were injured. The doctors weren't getting any protocols from CDC, the yep. hospital administrators didn't know how to respond be or didn't want to, you know, one or the other. I mean, who knows if it's because of money or because of no direction from CDC. But at the end of the day, the vaccine injured were not getting what they needed. And I think it's very interesting when in the paper, you have different phases of what may work, what may not work. So let's get into the weeds of this because, you know, many of the people that I, that I interviewed, uh, I know that, you know, I've, they have fallen into your orbits as well.
3: Yeah. I mean, The one thing I want to say about the document, so first off, Paul really was inspired, and I mean, he really wrote that document. Um, And what he did was really, he called the information from as many sources as he could. But like Paul says, you know, not only is there a void in recognition or the attempts to treat these patients, Mm -hmm. but there's also a void in the medical literature. I mean, most of our understandings, insights are from uh, what we call pathophysiology papers. There's no trials out there. There's really no clinical evidence or clinical research onto treatments right now. And so we're really basing that, you know, so so Paul put together a document, deeply researched, read all the papers. I think my role was more um feeding back some of my clinical experiences in treat because I, I devoted my practice over the last few months to treating these patients. And so I've learned a lot sort of just on the clinical uh experience side. And so it's it's really one of putting together as much as we know about the mechanisms of the disease that the vaccine mm-hmm. causes, the mechanisms of the therapeutics, and then learning from our patients. And so Paul and I, you know, we had a number of discussions on where to put what. And, and and you know, the, the final thing I'll say about it is that we'll evolve with the data. I mean, we're we we are not pretending that we know everything about this disease or how to treat it. Um, in fact, what I've been telling patients in the last couple of weeks is I say to them, I said, what I was doing six weeks ago or two months ago is very different than I'm doing now. And, and it really is. I, I'm, I'm learning you know to prioritize different aspects and I'm learning to pick up on different sort of syndromes that they're pre, uh, presenting with. Some predominate with one mechanism more than another. And so um, you know I, I want to be humble about this. And, and I just think that document is a foundational document because it's literally everything we know, anything we can possibly know about post-vaccine injury uh, and we want to know more. You know, My wish is that the the literature, the, the journals start to publish more uh, investigations into not only treatment, but case series, case reports of different therapies that work. There's a few of them out there, but it's not enough for, for the epidemic that we're facing.
1: No, it's not enough. But I want to honor the two of you, the fact that you're acknowledging that COVID vaccination syndrome, whatever the word you want to give it exists because that that that, that's been the battle since I started interviewing the VAX injured because doctors were not acknowledging it many of them went to the ER went to their GPs tried to get in to see some specialists you know they'd have to wait four or five months and then at the end of the day people didn't want to
3: recognize it let me say one word about that so every visit I have with a patient I I spent my first visit with them is always an hour plus um Mm -hmm. The initial part of it is is some of the saddest stuff, but it's the same story. It's and I hate using the term, but it's the gaslighting yes. by the doctors. And and I don't want to be too kind to the doctors, but I want to be somewhat understanding. The way doctors are trained is you do this test, and when this test is abnormal, you do this treatment. And and one of the subtleties, which I think Paul kind of addressed, but the the most wicked thing about this syndrome is it really doesn't lead to a lot of abnormal testing. So. MRIs, MRAs, CAT scans, uh, EMGs, where they look at nerve conduction in the muscles, EEGs, where they're looking for abnormal brain, uh, electrical brain activity. All of them are normal, and the patients are so sick. I've never seen batteries of tests that can be normal right. with the severity of patients. And every time they encounter the health system, not only the doctors don't believe it's ever related to the vaccine, They don't have the understanding of that like Paul put out in this document. I wish every doctor in the country could read that to develop at least a superficial understanding of what could be going on. But when they see all these negative tests, everybody without a doubt is told they have anxiety or depression or this garbage diagnosis of like a a functional or, or conversion syndrome, which is... They, you know, it's a somatic illness, and 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 they're they're given antidepressants or sent to psychiatry. And, and it's, well, we had
1: one person yeah. I interviewed actually was put in a psych ward. It's, I mean, and they were all said, "Well, this is anxiety. Go home." Yeah. One woman told me that she was actually in tremors at, in the ER, yeah. and a nurse grabbed her and said, "Stop it!" As if she could, but she couldn't. It, w- well, it was it wasn't in her head. This
3: was a well, this was a that's uncontrollable. But I will tell you, I think we should talk about that for two seconds. Um, Paul and I talked about this earlier, is that that's the other really uh, troubling or challenge for these patients is any sort of uncontrolled tremors when someone is awake and alert, mm-hmm. um, people who are having conversion symptoms, that's how they present. So they, they look like someone who's faking it, They're absolutely not faking. It. I mean, Time and time again, all these vaccine injuries, they have uncontrolled movements, tremors, twitches, convulsions, yet they're mm-hmm. awake. So you know it's not a seizure from the head, but they do have a lot of uncontrolled motor movements. And I think they're very quickly dismissed as, as wanting attention or having anxiety. And, and they don't have control over this. This is real. Right. And I, you know how I know that? Because I've treated some patients and it got better. You know, it got mm-hmm. better with medicines that, that worked on some of the mechanisms, some of the inflammation, some mass cell activation. Um even some medicines that calm down nervous impulses, they get better, and so you know it wasn't that they were faking they they had a disturbance in their functioning, and certain medicines can interrupt that and so but but i I can totally see why people think that they are making this up and 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 it's a shame and that hopefully we can get that word out that no one's faking this, no one wants to go around, lose their jobs, not be able to get out of bed and shake in bed all day. You know, right. if that happened to one person, maybe you could say, what, gee, why are they doing that? But the, there's legions of these people. And, and they're really well, there's, mi-
1: there's millions that haven't been acknowledged, you know, in this country and even worldwide. And they need to be acknowledged because our U.S. pharmaceutical vaccinations are distributed all over the world. Yep. All right. So, Paul, so, tell me what, what you
2: think some of the findings are. Yeah. So, you know, what Pierce says is true, but, you know, if you actually do the right tests, these people do have organic disease. There's no question of doubt that they they have organic disease and their presentations are very similar. So why would they all fake the same illness? And um, for reasons that maybe we're beginning to understand, the vaccine injured are somewhat different to the post-COVID vaccine injured seem to have severe and often profound neurological injuries Mm -hmm. and neurological manifestations, um, which are progressive. And unlike post-COVID, which tend to resolve with time, these symptoms do not get better. So we have patients 12, 14 months post-vaccination who are still struggling with the same symptoms. One of the the, uh, manifestations is called a small fiber neuropathy and this is what it seems to be a very classic thing with post-vaccination it's what causes the shooting pains and paresthesias and numbness in their legs and it causes it's of course very disabling and uh, we know what it's caused by it's caused almost 100 percent by antibody autoimmune antibodies so this what happens is for various reasons the spike protein Causes the body to make auto antibodies, and without question, every one of these patients almost certainly has auto antibodies. So they're not making this up. And so
1: this is so, Paul. Let's put this in layman's terms. So, so it, so it seems to diminish the autoimmune system of most of these patients, and most of these patients,
2: I understand, were women. So what actually happens is the the um, spike protein when the body makes an antibody against the spike, for some reason it misinterprets what it's reading and it makes antibodies against the host. So they're making autoantibodies, antibodies antibodies against the patient which interact with the spike. So this is much like lupus erythematosus where patients have autoantibodies. So what happens, and this is a a, a feature predominant and marked in patients post vaccination is they develop a whole array of antibodies that instead of being directed against a foreign pathogen or a foreign antigen are directed against the patient's own tissues and in this instance it's the nervous tissue and the nerves and the nerve receptors so um so truly astonishing. And
3: it does happen more, you know, autoimmunity is known to predominate in women. Right. It could be part of the reason why we are seeing a predominance of women. Um, remember, uh, medicine has a long history of, uh, I wouldn't say misogyny, but of dismissing women's symptoms, right? It's been described in multiple fields as something, the woman, I don't want to use the word hysteria, but no, you know, but it we was just because is that historic. is ingrained in the psychology of a lot of physicians. It's very well described that male mm-hmm. physicians, they, they tend to discount symptoms of women. But And I, I will say in my practice, I would say I have a majority who are women, but not to say I don't see men who are disabled and quite ill. So it's, you know, uh, I, I don't want to overstate how much women uh, get it, but there, there do, does seem to be a majority who are.
2: And there, it may be a good biological reason for this, but you know, appears right, 80% of vaccine injured are women. Most of these are women in their reproductive age. Yep. And we know that if women are placed on birth control, that often giving them exogenous oestrogen, it makes their symptoms a lot worse. And their symptoms vary with the menstrual cycle. Yes. And um, we know that estrogens affect, Im- you know, immune function. So there is probably a very strong biological reason for why this happens. You know, this this is not hysteria. There's really good biological reasons why it's more common in women of reproductive age. Yep.
1: Well, I know that when we interviewed the women, a lot of times they didn't want to talk about their cycles on camera. But of course, because I do the pre-interviews with them, I don't think that there was one woman that I spoke to who didn't tell me that their cycles... Uh, were not affected. matter of fact, some women who were postmenopausal told me that they had, you know for 10 years, all of a sudden they started having their periods. Yep. And then the younger women in childbearing heirs, you know, everything was uh, off, you know, or very, very clotted and very prolonged uh, than it was before that they had the vaccinations. What is it that you have found have you found anything in, in terms of genetics? possibly having something to do with it? I mean... Mm. yeah. So
2: that's a good question. I'll answer that question. You got it, Paul. I like it. (laughs) So yes, we know there's a very strong genetic element because what is fascinating is that if there's one vaccine-injured patient in the family, the likelihood of a second one is increases exponentially. So we know of, you know, sisters, the one sister's a nurse... She gets vaccine injured. Her sister's a a physician. She gets vaccine injured. We know of a gentleman who was vaccinated and got vaccine injured. His father got vaccinated a week later, had a stroke. So it seems like there is a very strong genetic. I definitely see clusters. There's like
3: I will say familial clusters. It's true. Like Mm you know, it's not far in degrees of separation. uh, You know. relation-wise that you'll, you'll hear of multiple people in a family that had some complication with the vaccine? So
2: we think, you know, genetics plays a part, you know, gender plays a part. Patients with underlying chronic disease seem to have a much higher risk of, 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 of getting uh, vaccine injured. And then I think, you know, nutritional issues, obesity, comorbidities. So I think there are a whole host of factors that increase the risk. then of course there's this specific lot that is being used we know Pfizer's playing games and that not every lot is exactly the same The, the mRNA content varies from lot to lot so i think the mRNA content and the type of mRNA and whatever else they've put into the vaccine will will have an influence on on adverse events
3: and, and there's a lot of data for that, that that Paul showed is that when you look at the reported injuries and even deaths, they seem to be inordinately concentrated amongst certain lots. And so that, that is, I think it's great that Paul brought that up because it, it's very complex um, and, and certainly it's the vaccine itself and the different, and it, I don't even know if it's the concentrations or it's quality control or there's contaminants in some, mm-hmm. uh, it, it definitely seems to be the, the other variable.
1: I know that when some, some people have taken the deep dive of the what we call the hot vials, yeah, uh, that many of them, I think the numbers that they ended in 20 or 21, that there was a pattern there. I, I but, but I think, and, and I don't know whether this came up in any of your uh, studies, but, <laughs> I couldn't figure out what the zip code was for the vials and when I talked to the people who put that list together that that piece of information seemed to be missed. Did you find any correlation between locations of any of these patients? I,
3: I will say we didn't we didn't do a deep dive on that aspect. I will say that There is so much information out there to sift through. I mean, we are part of a large network and I have attended some presentations of those who have done deep analyses. I I don't know that certain aspect of the location. So I
2: think I can answer that because it's a good question. So what they have found is that it's a particular lot number across various states. So Mm -hmm. it's not state specific or zip code specific. So it's a specific lot across all 50 states. Um, so um which makes it a much more credible observation yeah. is that the the findings are, are 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 reproducible regardless of which state that that lot has been administered
1: did did either one of you uh speak to any of the any vax injured overseas who received yes. ph- a US pharmaceuticals were they included in your examination so
3: i have um I have a number of uh, European, UK patients in my practice. Um, you know, they got the AstraZeneca, the Moderna. I mean, I, I, to be honest, I, as a, in, in my clinical practice, I don't really, knowing which vaccine it is doesn't change my management. But, but I, I will just say that they've gotten uh, similar vaccines, J&J even, to, to what we've had here. And so um, I, I see them injured across all three.
1: Is, is there any component that you can um, imagine or guess that may be in these vaccines that would cause this? Or is that uh, just too soon to even guess? So That's, a, that's
2: right. a really good question. The basic answer is we don't really know what's in the vials and they won't tell us what's in the vials, which is a truly astonishing thing that physicians are administering, you know, therapeutics to patients, and they really don't know what's in it. I think the, the overwhelmingly, the toxicity is from the spike protein. The, the, there's no question that, you know, the spike protein is, is highly toxic, results in all kinds of adverse events. And I, and, but then there's, you know, the, the peg that's in it and graphene oxide. And, and the lipid nanoparticle And the lipid nanoparticles. So, you know, there's so much it's not a pure preparation we don't know what's in it we don't know it's toxicity but clearly the the messenger rna which codes for the production of spike protein is the primary candidate for the toxicity i mean spike does all kinds of really bad stuff this 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 protein is not just i mean it was designed to be highly toxic and it does all kinds of things which are unimaginable. So I think a lot of the toxicity lies within the spike protein.
3: Yeah. And I think another thing that speaks to that is, although we do see some important differences between long haulers and post-vaccine, there's also a lot of overlap, right? And that, that commonality is the spike. And so I see stuff uh, happening just from people who've gotten COVID, not vaccinated, and they can actually present quite similarly to those who've been vaccinated, but um, and, 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 I, and I agree with Paul. I think the central pathogen is the spike protein. But the vaccine folks, they also, I think, clot a lot more. I think probably their autoimmunity is more. And I don't know what it is about uh, the, the vaccines that's causing certain mechanisms to predominate more.
2: And what we find is that a vex injured person who gets COVID. It causes a major setback. Yeah. So they they have a terrible relapse after they get COVID. So it's the cumulative effect of the spike protein that has these terrible uh, deleterious effects. Um, so that's why you know anyone who who's post COVID should never get the vaccine. Uh, someone who's vaccine injured should try and avoid getting COVID. And if they do, early treatment is absolutely essential. Because you, there's this cumulative toxicity of, of, of the spike protein.
1: So let's talk about the ethics of, of what has happened over the course of the last year and a half uh, in terms of not acknowledging. What ethics? Injured. I mean, if the early treatment, if you, if you, if you, from what you've concluded in, in your treatment guide, early treatment should be given for vax injured. And if you gaslight these vax injured, presumably because the system did not want to create vax hesitancy, um, they wanted to, you know, get seven billion people plus vaccinated, so they didn't want to acknowledge the vascular and neurological. The damage to these vax injured is a hurdle because you've concluded in the paper
3: that they should have received early treatment. Oh, this not not even a question. I mean, Christine, you're, you're a journalist who investigates corruption. I mean, you've been a close student of this pandemic. I mean, I think, I hope when the history books are written, where people are going to be able to look back on this time and see everything that was done and understand it so that we don't repeat itself. Now, we always say that better know your history, lest it repeat itself. Right. I, I it continually repeating. So I don't, I, I don't want to be too cynical, but um, I mean, listen, one of the things that I've talked about the most, and we have, is is the corruption around suppressing generic drugs. I mean, we long ago identified, uh, it started with hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, but the list of early treatment molecules and compounds that are effective is well over two dozen. Um, and yet, to date, in this country, we're only using Paxlovid and molnupirvir. And right. and I mean that's the, system, the system's designed that way that only those pharmaceutical drugs can make it through, um, but it's hurt patients and and they've actively performed or committed disinformation campaigns against generic drugs,
0: and Absolutely. that's why our
3: organizations under attack, our careers have been threatened because we were putting forth. Effective, really cheap, uh, very safe treatments that were are going to demolish markets for for pharmaceutical companies. So that corruption is still there. Um, you know, they're still foisting these medicines on people. I mean, Paxlova has does a huge amount of problems. Molnupirvir doesn't work, um, and so I, I, I don't feel that people are going to get effective therapy. Um, one of the
1: one of the issues that I think is, is kind of interesting, and I and and I. Early on, Pierre, when when you were testifying before the Senate, and I forget what month that was in. December 2020. 2020. Okay. December 2020. You were talking about ivermectin for early treatment. Paul was talking about that as well. And then um, when I started interviewing the Vax injured and kept up with them over time... The Vax injured were telling me that out of desperation because nothing was working, they were going to try ivermectin. Not this this is before you guys were in the picture. They just decided that they were going to try it because what the hell? They had 30 other tries at something else and nothing was working. And then they found that they had good days, yeah, good weeks. And now you two have concluded with FLCC that. Ivermectin does help some of these VAX injured from a medical perspective. Oh, yeah. oh yeah.
3: So so the thing about ivermectin, it's it's I don't want to laugh about this, but it's so central to every one of our protocols. But we're not just about ivermectin. I mean, right. all of our protocols are combination therapies, well thought out, using generally safe um, and and uh, repurposed medicines. But ivermectin, <clears throat> the way it works early treatment and in the hospital and the way it's working late is, is a little different, but it's, it's been astounding. You know, one of the things that I say is that my practice, I kind of divide my patients into ivermectin responders and mm-hmm. ivermectin non-responders. This is amongst the long haul and post-vaccine. The majority of my patients are ivermectin responders to either wow. a modest or large degree. Um, and when I see a response from ivermectin, they're obviously much easier to treat. I don't have to resort to the second and third line or multiple combinations as much. Um, ivermectin non-responders are much more challenging. But we end up, by trial and error, do finding things that work for them. But, but ivermectin is the cornerstone, and, and a couple of reasons for that that we think. We, we know that um, it has a multiple anti-inflammatory mechanisms, um, we do think that it uh, repolarizes some of the immune cells that are stimulated to a less inflammatory subtype. We also know that it binds tightly to the spike protein. And so, if there is circulating spider or there's spike protein that's liberated either through natural cell turnover, death, or some of the other treatments, it will bind to the spike. And, and so, you know, we think there's a number of mechanisms at which it can work, but I, I've seen profound responses to it. I mean, I've seen patients sick for months. And by the second or third day, they'll tell me that they haven't had a day like that in many, many months. And, you know, Paul wrote this really great sentence in in, in this new Bible of, of post-vaccine. But, he, you know, he says patients should serve as their own controls. And that's really what we have to work with patients. So whenever I introduce a medicine, I start it. I try not to start multiple things at once because I want to gauge the response they have. So I know if something's not working, I can pull it off, try something else. But but with ivermectin, you you can pretty much, relatively quickly, within days to a week or two, uh, you can tell whether it's helping, and it helps a, a significant amount of them.
2: So let's yeah, so just, just to add to that, um, firstly, there's no magic bullet. Yep. So there's no, there's no single drug that's gonna cure these patients. And unfortunately, patients are sold all of these magical detoxification programs that don't work. Secondly, Treatment of of COVID is quite straightforward and simple. The vaccine is much more complicated for reasons we really don't understand in that some patients will respond dramatically to one intervention, and yet a similar patient has no response. So that's why they have to serve as their own control and it's difficult to predict which patients will respond to which therapies. And so there is this enormous individual variation in their response to treatment yep. so that's why you know we have a few different medications and it's algorithmic and you know you know patients need to serve as though control and what works in one patient may not work in another patient i can give you an example of something which you know we discovered which is you know hyperbaric oxygen which surprisingly seems to be very effective for some patients we know of a particular young man who was completely bedridden, and it basically, hyperbaric oxygen, within a few sessions, rejuvenated this man. He he was on his bicycle, and he was almost back to normal. Yeah. I mean, the response was astonishing, and yet other patients, no response. Yeah.
3: It,
1: it, what, it's, it's what about so- fasting? I, I've heard from some some of these vaccinated that they have fasted for a couple of days.
2: Yeah, so you'll see in our protocol, sorry, to to override, Pierre, that we've combined ivermectin with intermittent fasting. And it sounds pretty bogus, but actually it's based on very sound physiological data. So when you actually fast, it stimulates the cell to actually break down misfolded proteins, damaged proteins, maybe the spike protein. So it's a way of the cell healing itself. uh, it's, a, it's, a very, it's called autophagy, where the cell digests broken and damaged proteins. It's very, very powerful. And so we think if you combine intermittent fasting with ivermectin, you have a really strong mechanism of restoring the immune system. Um, so intermittent fasting is actually a lot easier than fasting. Fasting is quite difficult. With intermittent fasting, what you do is you just miss breakfast and you slowly increase the period of time that you're not eating. And it does, it triggers an enormous amount of really important repair mechanisms in the body. And if you think about it, the way we evolved as hunters and gatherers, we would have a feast and then we would starve. That was. That was the way we were designed. We weren't designed. You didn't eat donuts four times a day? <laughs> we, weren't <laughs> to to the, we weren't designed to go to the store and eat donuts every two hours.
3: Yeah. You know, one thing I'll, I'll say is that fasting, like pure fast, water fasting, it, it is a little bit more challenging unless you're, you're sort of educated in the approach. Because the, the, the hunger pangs, and that actually not hunger pangs. Those are actually habits. And those are sensations that don't actually indicate hunger. Um, It's just something that it's a habitual sort of uh, hormonal cycle of insulin that we feel like we have to eat. It's not true hunger. And hunger actually goes away within a day and a half or two days. And once you get past that initial phase, people have really enjoyed, you know, semi-prolonged fast. You have to drink a lot of water. The other other way to get through those first two days is, you want to drink water anytime you're hungry. Drink water, and anytime the thought of uh, the feeling of food, or the thought of food comes in, um, you want to like click the X on the browser and just shut your mind off to the food, and you can get past the two days. That's right.
1: That's right. What about what about the the, the you have in the paper? You you have um, first treatment, second treatment, alternative treatments. Do you want to either both of you want to explain how that works and how you came to have those different
3: phases? Yeah. First of all, remember, that's in evolution. You know, mm-hmm. the first line are like kind of, I wouldn't say the simple stuff, but the things that we have seen uh, that work most commonly and that sort of make the most sense mechanistically. Okay. Um, now, we didn't really outline exactly how much to use, when to use. I mean, you still need some doctoring going on. Um, I, I think a general rule of thumb is, like I said, I try to layer in any subsequent Medicaid. I don't start everything at once. I start with ivermectin, I might go to hydroxychloroquine afterwards. Um, You know, obviously we start with vitamin C. I do try to get the intermittent fasting going. Those are kind of like some baseline uh, therapies. And then, you know, I try to communicate with my patients every few weeks to see where they are. You know, are they getting better? Are they getting worse? And see if you need to go on and try some other uh, therapies. And, you know, the last one, which is like kind of these promising or optional therapies... You know, those are things that we've gotten really good feedback from some collaborators. Think, you know, they have good mechanisms. They've used them to very good effect. And so we consider them options. And so it's not like a standard approach, but I kind of go to that. I, I already have a couple of patients that I've tried a, a few of those uh, medicines on, but that's only really been in the past week. Um, so I, I mean, we have a lot more to learn about prioritizing um, the, the, the
2: various compounds. Yeah. So well, did you want what, to say something? Yeah. What Pierre says is, is really true, and much like our previous protocols, this is a starting point. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we needed to start somewhere, and this is where we're starting. But you know, as we get feedback from patients and clinicians across the world, is what we do. You know, we will we will adapt this, and it will evolve. You know, with time.
3: Yeah, Christine, we're we're um, we actually collaborated with uh, Steve Kirsch's Vaccine Safety Research uh, Foundation. Um, they're helping us to put together just a survey for the vaccine injured. And it's really focused on uh, what treatments have you received, you know, what kind of, what constellation symptoms do you have? What have you received that has helped? What have you received that didn't help? And what have you received that made things worse? And we're doing that just to kind of amplify our clinical experience and feedback from patients because we're learning from our patients and it's kind of a vehicle in order to do that. So um, I hope, uh, you know, we'll, we'll share that I think on Wednesday in our webinar um, as well as VSRF will share it in their webinar on Thursday.
2: So there are, some, sorry, you know, there are some really fascinating findings. The one is that the vaccine changes the microbiome. So the microbiome is the bacteria in your gut, mainly in your colon. And this is a truly astonishing finding. And it's reproducible that people who get vaccinated, it causes a change in the microbiome to a very unfriendly microbiome. And the microbiome is really important because it, it it interferes, it is this gut, brain, gut, lung, gut immune axis. Right. And the bacteria in the gut make proteins, they make lots of materials that uh, interact with immune cells. So it, it um, a healthy gut is really important for having a healthy immune system. So one of the things we do recommend is, you know, restoring your bifidobacteria. And it seems for whatever reason, SARS-CoV-2 and the spike protein destroy your bifidobacterium. Hey Paul, you're a
3: bifidobacterium.
2: Yeah.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So why do you think, I mean, now that we know that the Pfizer document dump is happening and there's over 1200 adverse effects acknowledged by their internal documents, wouldn't they have known that if that their shot could ultimately affect the gut of
2: course. yes of I mean they know this they, they know they know this they know oh, this. of course I mean they know where the, where the nanoparticle goes the idea that you give the nanoparticle and it stays in your arm is a fantasy it's a fantasy like the moon is made of cheese it's just complete nonsense
3: and they knew that from a long time ago from from the some of the first phase one trials they knew that.
2: Mm -hmm. So so basically, the nanoparticle, unlike SARS-CoV-2, goes to every single organ in the body, most importantly, the brain, the heart, the ovaries. So it goes all over the place. And they knew this. And, you know, even in their randomized controlled trial, they knew of the adverse events, but they kind of... Discarded them.
3: Which we have to point out two th- two more things, and I hate beating this drum, but number one, um, sorry, that's bowling. Um, Roger that. Hold on, I might have to jump, guys. Uh, actually, this is a little early. The, the what I want to say is, this is the same movie playing out over decades, right? Pharmaceutical companies are long known to bar- bury event data. So whatever you see being released in FOIA documents is the minimum of what occurred, right? Right. We have many reports of them changing entries, not entering things, not following up with patients. So it's the absolute bare minimum. And Mm -hmm. number two, the idea that they know something is toxic, and don't call attention to it or try to bury it, they've been doing this for decades. They did it with right. Vioxx and Avandia, and they'll do it with anything. I mean, this is just how the pharmaceutical industry operates. It's it's a profit-oriented business. It's not about patient safety. That's what you have the FDA for. The problem is the FDA was totally captured even before this pandemic. Right. And, and the failures of that, the FDA, I think, need to enter the historic record. They completely were in the circle. They're
2: saying, yeah, the, the fact that the throughout. FDA accepted Pfizer's um cover-up for 75 years that they accepted that they would after 75 years which would obviously now change they would release their data from their from their submission that was what a they, they have something to hide. they wouldn't have done that if they were crystal clean and had nothing
3: to Paul well, What shocks me about that is they did it with a straight face. They went before a judge and said we would like 75 years to release this.
1: Not topic. not only that, but after the first month that they did the the first dump. They went back to the court and at, told the judge it was burdensome. And yeah. so they didn't want to do
3: it. And the judge said yeah, "No, no, they, they didn't that. have enough data collectors. I guess they ran out of money or something. They didn't have. Oh, yeah, money oh, yeah.
1: of course. So so let me let me just bring up before you before you have to jump here. Okay. There, there was a, a, an NIH paper that came out last week. There were 23 uh, people that the NIH was talking to. And they basically said that, you know, some of these people were cured, which I find to be very interesting because I know as a journalist that some of the people that I actually interviewed on camera actually gave their blood to the NIH uh, and they are not well yet. So, I mean, there's there's a distortion even in that paper coming out of the NIH at this particular time. I mean, these people are lying. That's that's the bottom line are do oh, you want that. to
3: take that one?
2: Yeah. So, I mean, there are a number of things which are really disturbing. So they knew this very early on after vaccination that there were vaccine injuries. They knew what they were because we saw in the paper, these were patients who presented with severe neurological injuries. So they knew this right at the beginning and, mm-hmm. you know, wanted it covered up, um, they then claim that these people were treated and showed re- recovered, which, as we know, speaking to almost all of these people is simply not true. So what they're saying is vaccine injuries are uncommon. And if you should be one of the few unfortunate people to be vaccine it's not a big deal because we can treat you. So, um, you know, they 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 have been completely dishonest. And then the question is why? you know, 15, 16 months later, do they now release this paper? What took them so long? This was the data they had. So, you know, why, why, why are they playing this game? Um, they- why are they, um, you know, delaying release of the data? Why are they lying? Why are they dishonest? And this goes back to the agencies, but to come directly from the NIH is truly astonishing.
1: Well, it doesn't surprise me because the NIH is where they, they, the vax gave their blood and they had the tele-meetings uh, um, tele uh, with some of these. And I know... As far as I know, Paul Marks was not on any meeting, but I do know that one of the vaccine injured spoke to Paul Marks and said that the, the neurological and the vascular must be acknowledged. He said, I do, but I can't officially do it. So he's fallen on his own sword because th- this is now on the on the record out there now. What is it you guys um, hope to accomplish with this? I mean, obviously it's the first of many, it'll be
3: ongoing. Um, help people, help people Christine, and give some guidance to doctors maybe what i really hope is paul's document i mean he really did you know that was his his thing i mean it's a it's a brilliant document like you said it's very highly referenced i just hope that that actually can get a doctor to think credibly that we're not just saying you know give this medicine give that medicine to anyone with a symptom i mean it's very well thought out it's as deeply researched as we can be even with the paucity of evidence that's out there so my hope is not only that it gains some recognition amongst the health system although I'm not going to hold my breath for that right uh, but literally it's a tool for physicians to help people when they present with these symptoms and and to give it some give it some substance in reality
2: yeah I think to give hope to these people who otherwise are desperate they they they're grasping at anything and I think this this is a starting point to give them hope the most important thing is that it's treatable there's something we can do i spoke last week with a young man who was about to kill himself because he had lost hope he, he was suffering he was going to jump off a bridge and drown and we t- told him that please there's hope there are things we can do and i think that's the important thing is that you know we're not sure we can cure this we're not sure we can have help everybody but please there is hope and let's try to do the best we can to help these people yeah. because that's what they need. They need help. They need our love. They need our understanding. They need our compassion. I love it.
3: Well, Christine, you... I'm sorry, but I have to excuse myself. If it's that's... okay.
1: It's okay. This is good, guys. You know, I okay. love you guys. Thank you for giving these people hope because I thanks, know it's been hard on everybody.
2: Thanks, Christine. Well, thanks, Paul. Bye-bye. Okay. Thanks, Abe. Eh. Good
0: luck. Thanks, Abe. Eh. Bye.